You're listening to a special edition of Energy Insiders, presented by Renew Economies editor Giles Parkinson, and recorded live at the National Energy Efficiency Conference in Melbourne. This special edition of Energy Insiders is brought to you by Flowpower, the electricity retailer making wholesale change to the way business buys power. Hello and indeed welcome to this special edition of the Energy Insiders podcast. Um, my name is Giles Parkinson, I'm the editor of Renew Economy and um, this is the first time we've done this in this format and uh, it's pretty exciting. Um, so we'll see how we go. Um, the topic that we've got today is a, a, about renewable energy and energy efficiency and demand response and how they can work together uh, for the good of the system and for the community. And uh, we've got a couple of um, great guests with us today. We've got uh, Rob Murray-Leach, the Head of Policy at the Energy Efficiency Council. Welcome, Rob. Hey, Giles. We've got Louise Vickery, the Senior Program Manager from the International Energy Agency. Thanks for joining us, Louise. Pleased to be here. All the way from Paris um, and enjoying um, Australian hospitality and an Australian lunch. And uh, Matthew van der Linden, the um, Head of uh, Managing Director of Flowpower. Thank Thank you for being here. Well, let's get it started, Rob. Um, the first thing, we're talking about energy efficiency and renewables and how they may work together or how they might actually sort of compete as we're sort of looking towards transitioning this system in the future. Can you give us a bit of an overview of that? Yeah, look, there is in some ways, and it's good to acknowledge it, there can sometimes be a bit of a conflict. I've certainly had renewable energy companies tell me, well, declining energy demand is not great for us because we want to sell much more product into the market. We sell energy. Um, And look, I think from a short-term, very venal perspective, that's probably true. Um, But in the long term, if you're going to get a real transition to renewable energy, we have to do it as affordably as possible. Uh, And that means we have to put energy efficiency, demand response, and renewables together because that provides the political support and the public support that will enable us to have a a strong transition. It's the same with energy efficiency. You know, you could go the other way around and say, well, for energy efficiency advantages, we don't have cheap renewables coming into the system. Energy prices keep on going up and up and up. That's great for the energy efficiency industry in the short term. In the long term, uh, it's pretty terrible for consumers. And my view is if we always look at, you know, what do we want to be delivering for consumers as our goal uh, and how we can get there with the right combination, that's the long-term play. That'll provide political certainty. That'll provide investment certainty um, for renewables, energy efficiency, and demand response players. And increasingly, to be honest, I'm seeing companies starting to deliver uh, all three of those together. Well, for you then, Matthew, um, Rob mentioned the companies. I mean, you're in that business. Yeah. How are they approaching this? Yeah, it's, um, it's, it, it's interesting you, you, you raise that because um, it is very true that the, uh, there's, there's often been an opinion out there that retailers just want to sell more power. Um, so the concept of trying to, to reduce power has sort of been a little bit... They've sort of suggested they don't want to do it. Um, with Flow Power, we sort of come from a very different place because we started out as an energy management business and evolved into a retailer. Um, and, and our model is very much around the transparency where we deliver an end-to-end service and partner with customers. Mm-hmm. So that, that's probably the key to it, is, is making, as, as the industry evolves and, and retailers become more partners in power and, and, and move away just from selling energy when they start to provide more technology, get involved with the generation and start sell, selling generation, mm-hmm. uh, and, and really see right through and really just help customers with their power needs rather than just selling them energy. That probably would help remove that conflict because we don't see that conflict at all. We, we're really keen to have our customers reduce power. Well, I mean, it's, it's interesting you say that because it's, I'm reflecting on that and thinking almost the key thing retailers are selling now is trust. Yes. And if you don't have that trust with your, with your client, yep. you've got very little. In fact, it's the biggest issue. I think, wasn't there a survey last year that, you know, sort of, 
Um, you know, the, a lot of the energy retail sector as a whole had less trust in it than, uh, than insurance and uh, car insurance and a couple of other sectors that had traditionally been the bottom of the pile. So, mm, you know, yeah. there, there's a real, uh, if you can get that market advantage of trust with your client, yes, it's a real advantage. Yeah, and how do you get trust? Well, you, you don't just get it by asking for it. You, you've actually got to do something different, don't you? So um, and that, that transparency is probably part of what would help build the trust back into the market. Most likely. Can I just pass it over to Louise, because you've been doing some very important studies for the IEA, um, particularly internationally, about this sort of, you know, this sort of trying to combine energy efficiency and renewables and, and how they go together in the system. Can you just sort of give us a bit of an overview of what you've been finding? Sure. Um, thanks, Giles. I've been seconded to the IEA spe specifically to look at this area of aligning renewables and energy efficiency policy in particular, but also making sure it's aligned with our energy market policies. Um, what, why, why is this so important? Well, the IEA projects that uh, energy efficiency and renewables together will make up 75% of the emission reductions that are needed beyond current um, policy approaches and current commitments under the NDCs. But we've seen that um, to date, those policies have been developed quite independently from each other. So you often have, um, dare I say it, policy advocates for renewables going, it's just about 100% renewables, and if we have 100% renewables, we're fine. And equally, energy efficiency, um, wanting to kind of promote that, um, is often been silent on the type of fuel that they're efficient with. And, and as Rob pointed out, you can have this conflict, not just at the business model level, but sometimes between policy makers that are also jostling for policy, um, uh, policy, I says, precedence and attention. And what we have been saying is that we're looking at, in particular, digitalisation, lower cost renewables, lower cost energy efficiency. Digitalisation itself is going to really enable, as Rob was saying, more linked up energy services. So anyone who's tried to renovate their house has to sort of grapple with, should I be doing double glazing, insulation, PV on my roof? And you have a separate person coming out saying, have I got a deal for you on PV? Have I got a deal for you on, on your energy efficiency obligations? Wouldn't be great if someone could come out and say this is your housing and this is the combined product that's actually going to give you an affordable low carbon uh, housing solution, business solution. And we think digitalisation can enable that, but policy is super important. So if you've still got policies that are incentivising one solution, technology solution, and not incentivising others, well, of course, you're going to get that being pushed rather than what is the least cost pathway. When people come and ask me about you know, whether they should get solar PV, I actually talk to them exactly about that. Well, think about what, you, what you're using at the moment, think yeah. about how much you can reduce, and then work out how much solar you may need. Yeah. Is there any example where actual governments um, and, or countries are actually thinking about this in terms of their whole grid? Because that's pretty much where we need to go, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, I think the one for me, I think that it's happening at a couple of levels. Um, from my experience, it's really Germany that's really probably at a national level brought back this thinking that if you're going to actually be able to afford to reach your clean energy targets and goals, we really have to step back and think much more seriously about reducing demand. So, you know, you know that Germany have put significant dollars into growing clean energy. Um, we probably wouldn't be where we are with PV today without without them sticking their neck out. But they were basically finding that that sort of single-minded supply side approach 
is going to lead to more expensive solutions. So they are very much bringing it back to sort of three key pillars. And what I love about this is it's part of their energy efficiency strategy as well as their power sector strategy. It's first of all, better understand demand. So there's been a lot, renewables a little bit, a bit like our supply side industry. There's the wind, there's the solar, there's the cheap land, put the solar, the wind there, not thinking about can the grid take this? Where is the demand? How much is going to be lost along the way to get that? So in Germany, they had the wind up the north. The people lived down the south, needed very exp expensive transmission lines to get it from the north to the south. No one wanted transmission lines in their backyard, so it's gone underground, so it's been very more expensive. Mm. So that sort of thinking that actually the solutions of the future are going to be where are the resources, Where's going to be the demand? Is it going to be more cost-effective to do distributed renewables rather than centralised renewables? All those sorts of things are starting to play and they're starting to say we need to integrate and think about that demand, think about where we can reduce it, think about where we can use local renewables and then think about sector coupling and electrification. Because the other thing that they saw with this very single-minded approach to let's grow PV, let's grow wind, is that they were having a decarbonisation of the electricity system, but meanwhile industrial energy use, heat and transport were not really being tackled. And so this sort of three-pronged approach and a more integrated system efficiency approach I think is what they think is vital if we're going to reach the clean energy goals that we need. And, and if I can just briefly say, then I think that's also happening quite well in places like California, we're going to hear about that after lunch, but also in places where New York Rev, where um, uh, Audrey Zibelman, who's now heading up the AEMO, came from. I mean, they were one of the first, I guess, uh, NAS, national electricity, admittedly focusing on electricity commissions, that started to say, okay, we have some, um, they had an attack of their, um, grid infrastructure after, um, after wind, strong winds. Instead of going down the track of just replacing that substation, they said, what's the least cost pathway to meeting energy needs? They looked at, okay, our buildings. Mm. Um, they're using a lot of energy. Let's reduce that energy first. Then let's look at where distributed renewables make sense and then look at what we need to do in between. And they've used that to actually, they're actually procuring energy efficiency, procuring distributed renewables rather than just going down the normal route. And that's an example of an integrated approach sure. at the local level. Rob, what's the opportunity then here in Australia because we're at a bit of a, a policy pivot at the moment. We're sort of thinking about this national energy guarantee. We're not too sure what it is. I guess we can actually make of it what we want to make of it or, or, or try to. So what's the opportunities here thinking about what um, Louise has just been saying about the international opportunities, thinking about Australia's quite slow uptake of energy efficiency and demand management initiatives up till now? Um, um, look, that's a, that's a really good point, and I think the National Emissions Guarantee we, and Energy Guarantee, we've, we've written to all the states and territories about exactly this, because um, the real risk is, what I actually quite like about the National Energy Guarantee is it just looks emissions intensity, and in a way that's actually better, you know, like in some ways when you have these sort of whole of economy carbon prices and you think it's going to drive everything, but we know actually it's, it's only addressing a number of the problems in the energy market, you can pretend it's going to unlock it, whereas at least this is, yep, this is, this is going to be our transition in our generation, mm. but we have to complement it with the energy efficiency side, and if we don't, it's going to be a lot more expensive. There was some great modelling from CSIRO earlier this year, the low emissions technology pathway, which we were discussing earlier, that, that really 
disappeared without a trace because it was like a week before Finkel. So a lot of people haven't picked up on it. And it had this very, very pertinent point, which is to hit the national, uh, the national carbon target, uh, carbon emissions target or emissions reduction target for Paris, we have to get around 50% renewables by 2030. If we go very hard on energy efficiency, we can do that and it can be very affordable. If we don't do energy efficiency hard, we have to go to 70% renewables by 2030 and up to around 50% renewables actually is very doable, not huge amount of support costs in terms of storage and so on. But once you start going from 50 to 70% renewable by 2030, really, really rapidly increasing costs. Now, maybe they were wrong on exactly those costs and how fast they went up, but roughly that story is true. Um, once you start going beyond 50% renewables, the costs start to accelerate pretty quickly. Um, so doing those together is gonna deliver us a really affordable, very doable transition, hitting those targets and buying us the time in a way for the costs of the storage technologies and so on to mm. drop and facilitate that transition to, to clean energy to go beyond 50%. So I think going beyond 50% is very doable, but just the more time we buy ourselves for that transition, uh, the cheaper and the smoother that transition will be. Yeah. But um, no, I'll back to you because you look like you want to jump in on this. <laughs> no, not at all. You were talking about energy efficiency. Um, I guess energy management is probably another term you could use. Yeah, uh, and, and then when you start to bring those together, you start to, to really get some... Because then it's not just about reducing kilowatt hours. It's about how you use your power, uh, when you use it, and starting to, to really become truly what I would call grid efficient. Um, and that's probably a key part of that, isn't it? So it's illogical not to do both together, isn't it? So energy efficiency alone is, is not the... If you just take it in its pure sense of just kilowatt hours, yes, it is in competition, and probably in some ways you might, might argue uh, discourage renewables, but it, it's, not, never it's never implemented that way. Yeah, I mean, I was just in the States, and, and, and their point there was that unless we get real amounts of demand response, because that's the cheapest form of storage. You definitely yeah. need battery storage and other forms of storage, but it's the cheapest form, and using that tranche yes. is going to be essential to getting low-cost, rapid uptake of renewables. Yep. Um, and actually, what Audrey Zebelman's doing at the moment, and uh, with her arena and uh, EMO, I think is really going to facilitate um, a, a lot of ability to be able to deal with those fluctuations that are inevitable with with variable output. But they're not going to impact the economy at all. In fact, it's going to lower costs. I think that combination. I guess the greatest difficulty then in the current political environment is going to be having energy efficiency and having the renewables to meet those climate targets, which I guess we've got to start off with the right climate target, which we may not yet have. But then if we do have new renewable energy, we do have increased energy efficiency and demand management, then you've got to shove something else out at the other end, which has to be presumably the fossil fuel generation because we want to meet the climate targets. Now, you've come across some of this issue in Asia, haven't you, Louise, mm -hmm. um, with your studies, because they've actually put so much capacity into the market yeah. that they're actually balking at some of these issues now. And I'm just wondering to what extent, well, if you can explain briefly what ha what's happened there, and to what extent we might face the same issues in Australia because of the politi politicisation, if I may say yeah. that. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the big tensions, and this is why we've advocated aligning renewable energy, energy efficiency and energy market policies, um, because if you can have very good renewable energy and energy efficiency policies, but if you have an energy market policy that is driving um, further investment in coal-fired um, generation, um, then you, you're going to have a problem and you're going to have an oversupply of capacity. And interestingly, I have been, as well as working with members of the IA, have been working with economies, particularly in Southeast Asia, 
And I initially went with the story of what happened to Australia, how we we're expecting demand to keep going up. We uh, weren't looking at what renewables and energy efficiency were doing to reduce that demand and the impact of structural change and how we overinvested in our grid. And what I've actually been finding is a similar sort of story with using top-down forecasting models and fairly ambitious um, growth um, scenarios of, yes, we'll all be using um, in energy what Japan uses and, you know, we see our economies growing strongly. So, of course, these economies want to be optimistic. But as a result of a combination of top-down forecast models, rather than looking at what's happening to demand, we are getting an overinvestment in capacity. So, Thailand currently has an overinvestment. Uh, Indonesia has an overinvestment. Singapore, um, there's a number of countries that have overinvested. Now, they would kind of say it isn't an overinvestment because we still have issues around electricity access. But I, I think the overall message that I've been communicating is energy growth and economic growth are decoupling in part because energy efficiency, in partly because digitalisation. You need to do much more around energy demand analysis, and I talked to some very important work that's currently being done in Australia, the energy use data model, where they're starting, they learnt those lessons from the overinvestment and starting to have better analytical tools using big data to better understand what is happening to demand, what is the impact of storage. That's the first thing. Then secondly, to look at where might distributed renewables in particular and energy efficiency lower that demand. Um, so you don't have to invest in, in more expensive uh, generation and grid. And then finally, yeah, where are the, ha, what, what's the optimal mix? And that's the kind of work that we're starting to do in Indonesia. Rob, um, how can we apply this when we're thinking about the NEG and how that might be con constructed? Was that not what you wanted to say right now? It was what I was going to say. I mean, it was say what you wanted but, to but say. But the point is, I, you know, I think it's really easy. If, you know, we can look at sort of Southeast Asia and go, oh, they've, they've overbuilt capacity. But, you know, I think about Australia and um, how badly we overbuilt capacity. And I went and gave a, 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 a talk, well, it was probably about three years ago, mm. where I showed um, some great work from, I think it was... Um, it was one of the consultants in Australia where they looked at the impact of uh, energy efficiency for appliances coming in. It's this incredibly complicated graph that looks like um, you've basically taken a huge amount of hallucinogenics and then you're staring at actually a very simple line chart. It's quite amazing. Um, showed them this graph and it basically showed exactly what was going to happen due to appliance standards due to demand in Australia. And not a single person in that room from a network planning perspective had ever seen that graph or expected that energy efficiency appliance standards would reduce their demand despite that being the biggest factor in driving down demand after 2008. This, like, 50% of that demand drop was not expected. 50% was completely expected, predicted, in fact, built into models. The complete lack of attention paid to the issue of, I mean, we can talk about it as energy efficiency, but maybe let's just talk about it as thinking about what consumers do. I mean, yeah. it was like, I mean, my favorite one to you, Giles, I know you're a, you're a big fan of, uh, of talking about this, this issue, was at a, at a forum with a very senior public servant saying, um, consumers are obviously completely wrong because they keep on buying solar PV even though it's not in their economic interest. And I was like, yeah, but you don't understand, they hate you. <laughs> and they don't want to have anything to do with you and your energy system. Yeah. And I'm not saying that in a mean way. That's what the taxi driver told me on the way here. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's what you're saying in terms of what our core business model is. We, we, we actually, our flow power, we aim to connect customers directly to generation. And we aim to implement energy management. And we've got enormous interest from the market in actually doing that. 
Um, and, and I have no idea whether the actual higher level market, the planners, are, have any visibility of what, what's actually going on. So when we look at the NEG and what they're proposing, um, my first reaction is, is why? Because I, I actually see a lot of the mechanisms to drive um, demand response already in the market, but what's actually happened in the market is um, the main players in the market don't encourage it. So, but how quickly will the market transform? So we're seeing it transform massive, like very quickly. We're, we're quite, a, you know, we're not a large retailer at the moment, but our, our, our business models plan to go 5, 10, 20% of the market. So if you put a, a retailer, in, a, a larger retailer, say 20% of the market that is connecting customers from one side to the other directly, what will that do to the market? Um, will that actually go most of the way to actually potentially correcting the, the, the demand response issue or the, or the demand issue in the market? Well, it's not just about hate. I mean, it's a good point about hating the retailers, but they've actually got the tools now to actually... It's actually an economic response, mm. not just for households, but particularly for businesses. Yeah. So they now have those tools. They've got the ability to write their own corporate PPAs for some of these... Yeah, that's, that's what that's, we're working on, yep. That's really interesting what they're doing. So yes. you're providing a solar power station or a series of solar power stations in Victoria where yep. people can write PPAs and get their own cheaper power yeah. from what you're providing. Plus, they've also got the options with demand response and um, energy efficiency. So. That's right. So with all the, the, the variable generation coming online at the moment with wind and solar, one of the, the challenges for the market is to um, is, is you're introducing more and more variable generation into a fixed contract market. And, and, it, and it's a very bad thing to do, really, at, at the end of the day, because you, you need the customers to respond to that power uh, or the, the variable generation. So, at, it, And it's also it's extremely logical that it's happening because... Um, if you're, a, if you're a, a retailer and you've got a fixed contract model, how do you connect your customers directly to that generation? It sort of basically doesn't work. You can't go to a customer and say, sign up with me for 10 years, just trust me on the power price I, I, I sell you. Customers won't do that. Um, what you need is a much more transparent market where customers can come in and contract directly with a large-scale renewable for 10 years and not have the risk that they're going to get ripped off. Um, but until you get that, the only avenue to offload the large-scale renewables is, is the large retailers, uh, and therefore it adds more variable generation to the market, which increases pricing, and their only mechanism to recover is to push prices up, and, and you just end up in a, in a cycle where the prices go up and up, which is sort of where we are now. Yeah, and it, it's an interesting one. And actually, coming back to the point, I just want to jump back to what you said, um, Giles, earlier about, um, you know, is there a risk of energy efficiency and renewables uh, and the NEG pushing out the existing fossil fuel generators, which I know uh, many of your listeners would be very upset about that idea of uh, coal-fired generators closing. Um, I suppose I've got two things on that. One is uh, the biggest risk actually for, for the market in Australia is we've got a hell of a lot of generation closing in around the mid-2020s. Yep. Um, and actually getting new capacity in to deal with that is a really big issue and getting some alignment about when we build new generation and when that's going to come out and creating certainty and investment for both people retiring and bringing in new assets. So it's not about whether it retires and gets replaced, it's just when, really. Um, that stuff is, is old. It's very expensive to rehabilitate an existing, uh, a very old coal-fired station, as we all know. Um, the but second one is... Go ahead. No, I was going to say that the second one is, is just um, that... Uh, no, no, you, you go first and I'll jump back in. Well, because I was just wondering about the exit of the coal-fired power stations. I wasn't saying it's a good thing that they do push them out, but I don't want to see the policy designed actually so those retirements don't happen. Yes. Based on the excuse that we don't have the renewables and we don't have the energy efficiency to fill the gaps. And that comes down to this key part of this design of this policy, mm. almost like do no harm, mm. but 
just do good. Yeah, look, that, that, that's true. That, but I mean, having said that, the energy market's so broken at the moment that any solution could probably only improve things, so that's not too bad. Um, I mean, coming back to something that Louise was saying and, and just around this retirement issue, one of the things I've seen as a huge problem in the energy efficiency side, and I don't know if it's been the same in the renewable side, is a bit of this story that we get, which is like, oh, we worry about the immediate circumstances. So a couple of years, in 2014, uh, one of the governments was proposing to get rid of an energy efficiency scheme because they said, we've got so much generation capacity, energy efficiency is a negative, it's reducing generated profits, it's a terrible thing. Um, we've got excess capacity, we need to suck that up. Fast forward to now, and everyone's freaking out that we don't have enough capacity. Fast forward another three years, and maybe electric vehicles will have started to really kick in, particularly in Asia, I think, before it comes in in Australia. Um, and we're going to have a real over, uh, undercapacity issue again. So I kind of go, let's stop worrying about what's going on with our generation demand mm. supply balance in this year. Let's actually mm. start to think longer term mm. and go, how can we design a market that takes us to the place that we want to and allows us to smooth the transition along the way between those? Mm. I think that's, that's mm. really the task. Is the transition for me to renewables isn't, isn't about how do we make this happen. It's happening. It's very clear cons what consumers want. They... they they will staple gun solar PV to every single surface that they can on their homes if things keep on going the way they, they are. Um, it's how do we make that a sensible, stable transition uh, with parties able to optimise the mix of uh, intermittent generation and demand response and energy efficiency mm. in the middle for consumers because, again, consumers don't really want to have to worry about that stuff. They want parties to do that for them, as far mm. as I can see. But it, the key part of that is to is, is that, that, that concept of transparency of, of, of enabling customers to have the choice to be able to do something yeah. about it, isn't it? Yeah. Like that, that's got to be part of the, yeah. the solution. If you don't have that, then consumers will never change their behaviours. Yeah. If it's not transparent and, you know, yeah. then you have that, that major problem that people just keep doing what they were doing. Yeah. I, think, I think the whole data transparency issue is vital in yeah. this period where we need to accelerate but also keep the lights on, you know, and one of the things I've been um, promoting a little bit at the International Energy Agency and it's coming up um, internationally is this whole geospatial um, uh, mapping of both demand, costs and performance of renewables and other, um, you know, fossil fuel generation. Because partly I think a future world of higher proportions of renewables is much more where um, the optimal solutions kind of are going to happen locally and regionally as well as nationally. I mean, you're still going to have big cities and big industry and need big in energy, but you're also going to have lots more microgrids and working out what your least cost solution is is going to be very much more around that. And I think there's generally a push. I've been working with these great people from Sweden, a system optimisation people. They're now working with the World Bank um, and with the World Resources Institute, developing these global maps that are starting to kind of articulate, well, what is the performance of renewable energy and what underpins those prices? Like, we hear these great prices, but are they based on negative interest rates, uh, free land and so forth? So what are the underpinning um, data and assumptions so that you can start to see these trends? What's underpinning lower cost EVs, et cetera, and then enabling a broader community to be informed about what the least cost trajectory is. So it's not just in the heads of one sector, but is in the hands of many decision makers. And I think that's, I'm, I'm actually 
quite optimistic about what digitalisation and and uh, of of and better um, visualisation of data is going to do to this space. If we can start to get a bit of it out of the filing cabinets of government and a bit out of the uh, filing cabinets of businesses, yeah. so that we can just really accelerate this information flow about well, what is the cheapest pathway? Yeah, it is. It's actually um, one of the key things we're trying to do is. With every new customer that signs up, they would put in basically a black box, what we call a CowWatch controller, mm -hmm. and immediately have live data to the second of what's mm -hmm. actually going on. And we actually take that to the next step as well. And, and you know, when a customer signs up to a large-scale renewable for, from, say, Ararat Wind Farm, which is our mm -hmm. first one, that they get that as well. So they can yeah. see the output of the wind farm compared to what their pumps are doing and actually start to exactly. turn their pumps on when the wind's blowing and, and stuff like that. That's pretty exciting for the consumer. Yeah, yes. it will be fascinating to see how, how it's taken up as well because yeah. part of that idea of putting the data directly in their hands is to just start the conversation almost, um, bring it into the boardroom, make the, um, the financial controller suddenly aware that, hey, I can probably, you know, maybe there is something here. Maybe we should change our policy and... It does have unintended different. consequences, though, because I got rooftop solar and I put in yes. the monitoring device and I was yes. sitting there watching the solar and then the oven would go on and then the oven would be overtaking the amount of solar <laughs> that was being produced. And I was going, switch off the oven. <laughs> We're stopping solar power We'll have dinner later. Let's do that later. Yeah, that's right. Yes, more storage that's was needed. probably the point when you're taking your renewables a little bit too seriously, right? <laughs> We're not having turkey for dinner today, kids. No. Nah. The sun's not shining. <laughs> the sun's not shining enough. I, I'm afraid it's cold pasta. <laughs> what I guess is, is that when you do see what you're actually using, and I guess it's the same thing with cars, um, particularly, um, is, is that you actually you do you, you look at it and you get into good habits, and then after a while you forget about it. But by then the habit presumably has formed. Yeah, I mean, I, I would probably say though, with with data, we we overestimate how much people like pure data. Like for me, if mm -hmm. I think about data or, or people getting PV in their home, there's this impact that happens, and it's actually a psychological shift. And it's actually what you were just talking about. Then it's not about saying, people don't look at the data and go, oh, this is the amount of kilowatts I'm using right now. This is the amount I'm generating. This is the amount I have to get off the grid. This is my cost benefit and my CO2. It's more that people start to then conceive themselves as a self-producer, self-consumer. Then when they think about that, then they start to think of themselves as an efficient person, and then that affects their behavior. So I think it's quite complex. And actually, one of the most exciting things, I'm going to do a plug for, for a friend here, but um, my friend Jody Newkin does some great work around communicating energy use data in buildings mm. Um, mm. and there's some great stuff going on in Europe and around the world about saying how can we visualize renewables in a way that's actually really really cool and it doesn't just have to be that it can be uh, environmental stuff there was a great um, artist from she's American she did this great one where they used oysters uh, in waterways in major cities and oysters if you don't know, if you know they're very sensitive to pollution levels and as they open and close um, they would tell you basically how polluted the water is, and then they had these sensors measuring the oysters, and basically the oysters was, would sing at you how polluted the water was, which is kind of fascinating. But you can do those sort of things for, for renewables and for energy efficiency. There's a, there's a generator in it's Copenhagen. What they do is the more efficient the population is, they project a green cloud coming out of the power generator at night, and the bigger that green cloud is, the more energy that people are saving. That's cool. That's funky. That's visualization in a way that's actually really affecting for people, as opposed to you know a single little dial doing that on your uh, on, on your on your iPhone or whatever. That's sexy. I think mean, that's, that's the funky future. Of, all sorts of possibilities we could think of in Australia. Yeah. Look, um, amazingly, we're actually starting to run out of time, so we've got to kind of wrap it um, pretty soon. But I just want to get some last thoughts from each of you. Mm -hmm. I think maybe starting with Louise, if you had any bit of advice for policymakers at the moment to sort of talk about the things that we have been talking about, which mm -hmm. is this combination of renewables and energy efficiency, mm. what piece, What would you be saying to them in yep. a few words? Look, 
Personally, my view is that the national um, guarantee um, is actually on the right track, and that's where we got to in our work, which is that we need to design policies that deliver the end goals most cost-effectively. So um, I think it's on the right, while at the same time recognising that there's barriers to energy efficiency and there's barriers to the take-up of new technology. So we kind of went to the, the thing of driving energy efficiency as a means to an end and renewables as a means to an end, but now we need to have them play in the real world. So, you know, my advice would be let energy efficiency compete for um, the emission reductions and let and, and renewables compete for the emission reductions as well as the reliability and let everything compete for that. But at the same time, recognise that there's going to be certain barriers around energy efficiency and adoption of new technologies that still need focused renewable energy efficiency policy. That's where we got to there. The other is, is that we, we, I basically came to the fact that three things need to happen. One is policy makers, energy market designers, energy efficiency policy makers and renewable energy policy makers need to talk together a lot more. They need to stop being competitors and they need to be going, we're on a transition, how do we get there most cost effectively? Secondly, I think tools that I've been talking about, what's happening in the European Commission, better tools to understand the impact of your policy on the electricity system that always needs to be in balance versus your long-term goals mm. around emission reductions. And then thirdly, as I said, it's this, this that we, we came to the point that policies need to be about the end goal and recognise that energy efficiency and renewables are means to an end. They're not an end in themselves and we need to find the most cost-effective way to pull those through. Rob, what's your pillow talk for a policymaker? The NEG is at the moment, it's the only policy on the table. So our view is that we actually want the states and territories and federal government to sit down in good faith, um, put in some realistic uh, emissions reductions targets in it. Um, and as a mechanism, it's, it can do it, it can do actually some reasonable things in the emissions space as long as they've really dealt with the competitive issue, because that's the bit I'm actually most concerned about with the NEG is how do the smaller retailers who are really critical to competition in the market, uh, how do smaller players in demand response play into those markets for both reliability and emissions reduction? I think that's the really key thing. So for me, I'm actually more concerned about detailed design, getting that right, and then balancing the neg with some really serious work on energy efficiency at the same time, because if we don't have those two playing in together, uh, the costs are really gonna blow out for the scheme. And that's perfectly into you, Matthew. Um, competition is one of the big concerns. You're yep. a small retailer, so what do you want to see in it that protects both your interests, or the small interests, and the level of competition, and more importantly, the consumer? Yeah, it's, it's absolutely critical, and it's probably the biggest concern, is that it does encourage the right behaviour. So we're talking about demand response a lot. Um, by its very nature, the National Energy Guarantee is, is basically asking people to invest in dispatchable generation. So if you take that to the extent, and one of the concerns would be that if you had a customer that's already load managing, and then the government comes and says, you don't need to load manage now, stop load managing, go buy, go, go buy a contract that, that does it for you, you definitely don't want that to happen. You want to make sure that, that the demand response is fully encouraged, in fact, encourage more. Yeah. Um, and, and that's absolutely critical. It's probably one of my biggest fears is what will be the mechanism that encourages it more. And, and you've got two different types of demand response, haven't you? You've got the one that's going to be measured by AMO, where they've got a baseline methodology, it's quite complex, but you've also got a huge amount of demand response that's capable of just what I call natural demand response. Um, and that, that's driven by price. So you want that to be encouraged even more as well. 
um, and not discourage, and that's mm. critical. Look, the devil's going to be in the detail, and I do see um, Robin Louise itching to add some more, but we have actually run out of time because we've got a certain time slot into this lunchtime arena. I do apologise to the audience. We didn't get round to questions, and we would have liked that to get some sort of interaction. But um, I do thank you for being here. Um, I do thank the National Energy Efficiency Conference and the Council for hosting this podcast. Um, it would be great to see um, the response, um, particularly online. And I'd like to thank um, Louise, Rob, and Matthew, thank and our guys. sponsor, um, Flow Power, and, um, and to the technicians. So thanks for listening, and um, that's all from here. This special edition of Energy Insiders was brought to you by Flow Power, changing the way business buys power. Buy better, buy wholesale with Flow Power. Mm-hmm.